Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Not so bad, thanks, John. Excellent. Glad to hear it. So we are going to talk mainly about boozing today. Boozing, which you have to do with boozing, which you haven't been doing for a while, yeah. and obviously lots of people in the country haven't been doing throughout January. Yeah. But but it's a national hobby. Um, we've had some really interesting news from the beverage sector this week, uh, Fever Tree in particular. Uh, we've had an update from J.D. Weatherspoon, which you've written about in your Alpha report, and your magazine column is about PepsiCo, yeah. which I believe was once looking at Fever Tree as a potential takeover target. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a bit cheaper now, though. Should we start with Fever Tree? Yes. Let's start with Fever Tree, because this was something that you wrote about in your magazine column uh, in November last year, suggesting that the share price, which had already come off a little bit at that point, may have further to fall. And so it has proved. What's gone wrong? Uh... Lots of things have gone wrong. I think that uh, I think the com- the company has become a victim of its own success. Two thousand and eighteen had a absolutely fabulous, fabulous year in the UK. Uh, buoyed up by a very hot summer, it therefore set a very, very high bar to jump over in twenty nineteen. That's part of the issue. I think I think the the issues are more deep seated than that. I have been expecting a profit warning from from Fever Tree for a while. I mean, should, we, should we just go back to the latest update and what the numbers actually are yeah. from that update? Yeah. So, I mean, let's just take a bit of a step back to November when the company last updated the the market on trading, and this was almost a kind of sort of veiled veiled profit warning or something approaching that. So, you look at the core UK business, which is the main bulk of revenues and profit, and they came out saying that. The business had slowed down, and that sales for uh, the full year in the UK would be up by two percent. Now that implied, backing it out from what's happened in the first half, that there would be no sales growth in the second half of the year between June and December, and that was on the twentieth of November. This week they came out and said that the sales in the UK actually fell uh, by just over one percent. And what period? What period is that over? That's that is for the that is for the year as a whole. For the whole year. So if you look at that in terms of the second half, which is something I always encourage investors to do, and it's it's not done that often, but you you can do it and you can look at the trend. That implies that second half sales fell by five point six percent in the UK. Mm-hmm. So you go from a position on November the twentieth where you're sort of guiding towards flat sales. So this is right before you enter the Christmas period where you hope people will drink lots of gin and tonic and cocktails and that kind of thing, to the actual outturn being 5.5% fall. Christmas sales must have absolutely fallen off a cliff, is, is, is the only conclusion and the right conclusion to draw from this. Or, or management didn't really know what was going on, but I, I tend to think that they probably do. Well, they don't seem like foolish operators no. and they've run this business very well to build it up to what it is yeah. so this this must be an unexpectedly sharp slowdown yeah but to go from an expectation of flat growth and then it turning out to be minus 5.6 shows you how quickly this deteriorated this is obviously something of a worry because the you are entering now you're going to be entering the new trading year with obviously a lot of unsold stock and i think added to that is a growing awareness evidence that certainly on the UK gin market 
it, it peaked. I mean, Mark Robinson um, wrote an interesting piece on the web. Lead piece in the news section in the Meg as well. Yeah, and he, he gives reference to uh, an analyst report or a report from Bernstein, the brokers, which is essentially saying that the premium gin market, which is obviously what Fever Tree Tonic is selling into, the sort of pricing of that has gone negative, and it's a sign of obviously a sign of softening demand. Well, you, you mentioned this in your in your alpha report. You know the 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 alcoholic beverage trends that that we've seen come and go over the years. You talk about Alco pops and cider, which was obviously the Magnus craze, yes. which was a couple of summers, which I enjoyed very much. Craft beer, which obviously a lot of the big brewers have been buying into. The worry was always that gin was going to be another fad yeah. like this, and and perhaps we're seeing that. Time will tell, but that's obviously the the fear. I do yeah. like a nice gin too, though. I mean, lots of people do, but you see, what do people drink gin and tonics for? Is it is it for the flavour of the gin or the flavour of the tonic? And my my sort of view on this is that the Fever Tree product, having drunk a few, you know, I can speak from experience, not well, recent experience, not recent experience, <laughs> but you know, I think there is a danger. I mean, I mean, some people love this product. A lot of people love this product. The danger is that the product starts to dominate the drink in that the, the tonic, and particularly these sort of exotic flavours, start to dominate the gin. So, you know, why are you going to pay an ex- buy an expensive bottle of gin to have it sort of diluted away by an expensive bottle of tonic? Having said that, a cheap bottle of tonic can ruin a good gin. So there, I think there is, there is a, an well, argument to be there is, for but, the premium you know, tonic. There is, there is, and I'm not going to elaborate any further on that one. <laughs> but I think, you know, it is... The, the other thing as well is is that, and this is a question that I've raised numerous times over the last twelve months, two years. You know, is you know what is the real competitive edge that Fever Tree has? You know, what are the barriers to entry in this market? I, I, I would have said distribution. So it managed to get itself in in pretty much the uh, the whole pub trade very very quickly, which it deserves a lot of credit for. Absolutely. So yes, there are some barriers to entry, but Fever Tree itself doesn't own any manufacturing plant, it doesn't own any bottling plant, it doesn't own any distribution. It's all outsourced to third parties. So if Fevertree can do that, then so can others. And you're beginning to see competition. In the supermarkets. In the supermarkets, less so in the on-trade, in the pubs, uh, where Fevertree looks to be firmly entrenched there. I think in the off-trade, competition is definitely hotting up and this this is um supermarket owned brand stuff you've obviously got schweppes is a a sort of uh, sleeping giant in the yeah somebody space. somebody on twitter um a very useful useful tweet said that um he, he, he was saying that uh, schweppes heavily discounted their premium 1783 brand over christmas Actually, I've got I've got a little story about that myself because my brother runs uh, a kitchen, a golf club kitchen, and their distributor was giving them uh, cr- trays. You know, the sort of uh, the, the the mixer tray yeah. it must be about twenty four bottles, something like that, of the Sweeps Premium Tonic. Yeah, if they bought a bottle of particular gins, they were giving it away. Mm. But and you've I- also seen, you know, you see the likes of Fentimans, which has been around for a while. And then another one, which is um, seems to be growing in popularity, is one called Double Dutch. Okay, um, must try it. Mm, have to go to Waitrose, I think, to pick that up. No, probably won't try. <laughs> um, and then again, we've seen Coca Cola itself. Coca Cola, um, which obviously got an interest in Schweppes, 
actually launch its own um it's called signature signature mixer brand and has four different flavors mainly for brown spirits well this this is the interesting thing because even you know we we've we've long suspected that the UK was slowing down for fever tree yeah the story you had to buy into to buy the shares at the price they were was that international expansion was going to more than compensate for that and obviously the US being a particularly significant market and i think you've commented before that actually when they go into the US it's not a gin market it's a brown spirit market it's a cola market and it's a bigger challenge altogether definitely and i think to be fair to fever tree they done they done pretty well in um in america last year i think 33% sales growth but from a from a reasonably small base yeah yeah i mean so we they went from what about 35 million of sales to 47 and they're doing 132 million in the uk um and i think what's the real clang another big clanger in this week's statement is they've come out and said well, we need to do some more work to really establish the brand in America. And therefore, we're not going to grow at 33%. We're going to grow at low double digits percent. And I'm thinking, my goodness, you know, what what's going on here? You know, you're supposed to have got a distribution agreement in place, national distribution agreement in place in America. What on earth is going on? that you essentially pull the rug from underneath this business and the growth rate goes from 33% to 11 12%. I, and they never really expanded on that. They may well have done so on a conference call or whatever, but um, that to me was absolutely perplexing mm. because I've never never come across something like that. Why would you do that? And it only only sort of raises suspicions that, there's something not quite right with the distribution arrangement they've got in place, or the other, the other, the other interesting thing is that they're guard, guiding for you know quite materially lower profit margins as well, both the gross profit margin and the EBITDA margin. Oh, overall, overall, yeah. And you know, one of my chief concerns with Fevertree as a whole is it's too expensive, and you know, the reason you can make big fat profit margins of around 30%. It's because you're charging very high price for it. And, you know, one of the, I think, proven rules of economics, if you charge high prices, you're going to attract competition. And you are attracting competition. Um, but also, if you want to keep selling stuff, there's a lot of there's a lot of margin that you might have to chop to get people to start buying it again. I mean, this does sort of beg questions of the valuation. You say that, you know, the shares... The shares have been extremely expensive. They're still quite expensive. I think they're still expensive. Yeah. And, and are we are we clear on whether that that they're being valued on profit forecasts that we can trust? I know you did some back of the no, I, I think, calculations. Yeah, I think profit. I think profit forecasts for twenty twenty are too high. Um, I mean, I just did a back of the. It used to be called the back of the fag packet, oh, yeah. but you know, you take the assumptions of. So you've got the four the four main regions. Fevertree think they can return to growth in the UK in 2020. Probably not in the first half, maybe in the second half. But I I assume that there was no growth at all in UK sales this year, which might be generous. I then assume that... But it's very dependent upon weather. Existing Uh, stock positions, competition, that kind of thing. So it seems a little bit of a a shot in the dark. But let me continue. Okay. So you assume flat UK sales. You then assume that America grows by 12%, which is fits in with the low double-digit guidance. 
Europe, I think I assumed about 13%, slight slowdown from where we had this year, which was about 15%, and the rest of the world grew by about 15%. And then I applied the guidance of a 28% EBITDA margin to sales of about 277 million. They were 304. Forecast was 304. And I get 277 with those assumptions. I put I put 28% EBITDA margin, which is what they they um they guide to, and I get about 77 million of EBITDA, down from about 92. The current forecasts are for 287 million of sales and 82, 83 of EBITDA, and then about 55 pence of earnings per share. Now, if I get 77 of EBITDA, there's about four of DA depreciation and amortization, a little bit more, and then you tax that a sort of like a sort of nineteen percent range, which is what analyst forecasts were assuming, and I come out about fifty-one pence per share of uh, of earnings uh, for twenty twenty. And current forecasts, and we may not have seen all the upgraded for uh, downgraded forecasts feed through to consensus yet, but you know, the, as of last night, the consensus was fifty-five. I got to fifty-one. If you start getting a worst case scenario. On or a worser case scenario on the UK sales, you're looking at something with a four rather than the five. And then you've got the shares at over 16 quid. So the shares are on 32 times earnings. For a business where its core market is now got big question marks over its ability to grow, you have an American business that's hit teething trouble. And then the rest of the business, which is doing okay, but maybe not big enough to move the whole tanker as a whole as, as the business. And I think this this company looks very very exposed. You know, you could easily what 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 we've had, and this is how you know momentum shares work. You get earnings upgrade, and expansion of the PE multiple that goes on it. That process can work in reverse. Mm. So we, you know, I think Fever Tree is now very very exposed to the risk of what's known in the trade as multiple compression, and a downgrade cycle as well. Absolutely. And if this comes through, then you know people are not going to value this business at thirty-two times earnings. Now they could value it at twenty times earnings on fifty p of earnings, and your shares are a tenner mm-hmm. rather than sixteen plus. And I think as for the bid, as for the bid rumours, well, yep, that's possible. But I think why? Who 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 are the buyers of this business? You, obviously, you've got Coca Cola, Pepsi. Are you are are seen as as buyers, Coca-Cola's already got Schweppes. It's already now bringing its own signature premium mixers out, which I think it will roll out into the American market, which is competition for Fever Tree. Pepsi, I think they've got other fish to fry. If you we'll look, at, if you that. look, if you look at their their strategy, I'm not convinced that premium mixers are a, are a big part of their growth strategy for their beverages business. Diageo has been talked about. Why I just don't see why Diageo needs a tonic water business to drive the sales of its gin business and its spirits business when they're doing perfectly well as they are. So the hopes for a rescue bid also look pretty slim. In your it's possible. Opinion. Look, possible. You know, it's, po- it's possible. It's possible. Especially as the shares get cheaper. But you know, you're paying. You know, you're looking at a company with a market capitalization of you know around just under two billion pounds, making seventy million of operating profit. 
So you know you're getting you're getting a three and a half percent return on investment before you take factor in any any uh, takeover premium. I, one thing that surprised me is that there's very few there's very little short interest in this. I was on on shorttracker.co.uk last night, and that that looks at the the short positions, the amount of the, the amount of the total number of shares that are out on loan. There's only about half a percent on Fever Tree. Tiny. I know that um, Michael Taylor, a friend of ours, absolutely. I noticed him uh, um, tweeting that he probably he's probably one of the few people that's made more money shorting yeah. Fever Tree shares than those that have profited on the way up. Yeah, for me, for me, I, this is. I'm not really a fan of of short. I like to sort of look at a more positive side. He's of a life. trader. He's a trader. I'm not nothing against what Michael's doing. He's just, <laughs> trying, to, he's just trying to carve out a living for himself, but. I would say there's more potential interest from a short seller's point of view than than someone looking to make make a, a rebound on on this. Absolutely, famous last words. Yeah, but you got it right in November, so uh, probably worth listening to. I think you know there's still a lot of risk. You know, as a, as a my my problem with this has never been. I mean, I have concerns about the business model, the pricing, the sustainability, particularly in the UK. The ability to take on the big drinks companies elsewhere. And I have concerns about that, but you know, credit to this company's done a really good job. My my chief concern is that the expectations that are based into based into the share price have always been far beyond what I think could realistically be hoped for. Often happens. It, with momentum shares. Yeah. Often happens. Yeah. Another story from the uh, alcoholic beverages industry which is a bit more positive which is JD Weatherspoon which you've talked about in your alpha report this week they've they've uh, they're looking good yeah i mean i think if if you needed any proof which i don't think you did this company is by this for me this company has got by far the best business model for pubs out of the quoted operators in the UK by a long way it's got a very simple business model, selling reasonably priced, almost you could say cheap, cheap food and drink in pubs that they keep in pretty good nick. Yep. It's as simple as that. And, you know, they've delivered another really positive set of like for like profit sales growth. I think 4.7% for the first 12 weeks, sorry, for the last 12 weeks, and then... This is a half year trading update. So the 25 weeks is 5%. And that's up against, you know, we're now looking at two years or more now where the company's been doing sort of five, six percent light for light sales growth. And I think if you look at last year, uh, so they've done what, five percent for the first 25 weeks. I think last year they were doing about 6.3. Um so they've come down a bit. But they're still doing five percent growth on six point three percent growth the year before, and you know you're looking at a sector here which has got quite a lot of cost inflation, national living wage, mm. business rates, and this is you know this is a good story. And we we looked at it in a recent feature. We we did a, a scuttlebutt feature, yeah. and uh, Alex Alex Newman spent a lot of time finding people who were connected some way. With the JD Weatherspoon story, either suppliers or or, or staff or, or customers, and the story was very positive. It's a really so, yeah beyond the numbers, a yeah. very positive story. Well, the numbers are a product of that. Yeah, they are a product of the way the company conducts its business. Yeah, uh, absolutely, uh, and um, and they, they don't lie. 
and I think that you know it's you know when you've got got cost inflation running at two three maybe even four percent here, you need pretty strong like for likes just to keep your profit per pub where it was, mm. and most companies aren't doing that and and Weatherspoons is and the the other thing as well is that the, the thing I like about this is as well is that it's not just the trading side of it. It's what they're doing beneath that. So they are not opening lots of pubs. In fact, they've been shrinking the size of their pub estate the last two or three years. Probably start growing again this year. Um, yeah, net four down this year. Net four first half, but they say they're going to try and open 10, 15 for the year as a whole. They've only opened one so far. So that that suggests they haven't said how many they're going to close, but they might you know they might close more. But the quality of the estate's getting better. But the other thing that they're doing is that they're continuing to you know this is a business that underlyingly generates about hundred million of free cash flow a year. The dividend is very small, and therefore the underlying cash flow is essentially being used to buy out the freeholds of the pubs that they currently rent. And then the rest is to buy back stock. And it's not some fascinating figures in, in, in the update this week that when they started buying back stock in 2003, there were, I think, 222 million shares in issue. And I think now there's 104 million. And the other thing as well is that the business has gone from about 40% freehold to over 60% freehold which gives it asset backing, it gives it flexibility to move in and out of poorly performing pubs that the leasehold operators, Revolution Bars being a case in point here, they just can't do that. But it's interesting, like Tim Martin said, that if they had not bought back any shares and they had not bought any freeholds, then parking aside the lease debt, the business would have been debt-free. So it's all so the debt that's been taken on has been, and I suppose you can say that it's not debt free because it's telling you that to buy the freehold you have to take on debt. But but buying back the shares has has sort of complemented what's been going on at the trading side and made for a very good investment. Clever man, old Tim Martin. Yeah, uh, but you see, the, I mean, the thing is though now the shares are now pretty expensive. You know, you're, you're having to pay over twenty times earnings for a for a business like this. And it's, Cheaper than Fever Tree, though. Cheaper than Fever And you can trust the numbers. Yeah. And you can sell a few pubs if it all goes wrong. Uh, should we, uh, let's stick to beverages and uh, have a look at your magazine column, which is PepsiCo. So, venturing beyond these shores. What, why, why, why PepsiCo? What, what's prompted you to have a look at that? Uh, lots of reasons. I mean, it's uh, essentially, it sells a lot of products that hopefully uh, people will know quite well. So, hopefully, it is a, it's a company that the reader can relate to. Um, I suspect relatively few readers will own shares in PepsiCo. Yeah, it's 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 not it's not just the familiarity with the products, but it's it's also been a kind of it's a share that's been very consistent because it is a a business made up of products that people buy lots and lots of times throughout the year. Branded branded products, branded products. And this this is the theme you mentioned in, in at the beginning of the piece that actually there has been this idea that if you own big brands. It's it's uh, it's it's almost bond like they're going to deliver forever. Yeah, you question that thesis. I we, we've spoken about that before on this podcast. But yeah. in PepsiCo's case, you're a little bit more convinced with its brands. I am now. I think if you looked at this company a year ago, you would you would have a lot of doubts. 
I'm actually quite bearish on branded companies. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of niche competition coming up, particularly in food brands, more health conscious products, young companies, dynamic companies that advertise online. Do you know I had an amazing stat earlier this week that 25% of all products launched in the UK last year were vegan yeah. or vegetarian. I think it was mostly I think it was actually vegan. And a lot of those companies are young startup type food producers. Yeah, and these are big threats. One of the reasons I'm quite bearish on Unilever actually because because of the exposure their food brands have got. I'm also bearish because of the the rise of private label. And you only have to go and walk around most supermarkets these days and you can see the quality and emphasis being given to premium private-owned label products. Well, going back to Fever Tree, I mean, Tesco has launched a very, very good private label I think uh, it's tonic brand. I think it's actually scrapped it now. Oh, it's scrapped I, it? I think it's gone off the shelves. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that good. But I quite liked it. But it's got, you know, but, you know, things like premium finest range and moving into cosmetic not cosmetics but healthcare type products personal healthcare products so there's that but i think you don't get a lot of people buying private label colas it's sort of not not the kind of thing that that gets done well they're pretty disgusting but yeah but then again some people would say that cola is not particularly health conscious drink these days and clearly people but it's quite nice people yeah people are drinking less of it but where Pepsi has been starting to get its acting gear now is it is that I think it's been a little bit of sleep, um, particularly on its beverages business, where you've had a lot of new entrants, new competition. And I think the company would freely admit that it's not been as good as, say, Coca-Cola as getting in people's faces, you know, in terms of vending machines, coolers, in-store dip- displays, packaging, size of, you know, these small cans now are getting quite popular. And Pepsi's got some catch-up on this, and it's throwing a lot of money at it, um, which is holding back the profits this year or last year and should help it hopefully to grow going forward. But I think the other thing as well is that you have got a set of products now that are much more in tune with consumer trends so for example gatorade for example just used to be an energy drink which had an unbelievable amount of calories per bottle and people don't want to do it so they've just gone and launched a zero sugar and it's doing great and they've got a series of waters flavored waters which complement that they've got teas and coffees they make they make the lipton tea for unilever the coffees for starbucks and so they've got a portfolio here and then you throw in the pepsi sugar free the pepsi max and there's a bit of momentum behind this business now um but there's also an outstanding business within pepsico the it's a uh, frito lays which is the sort of snacks business of its main products that people will know are things like doritos um and then they have cheetos cheese snacks and in the uk which is not part of Frito. Obviously, they own Walker's Crisps as well, which is a which is a big uh, big PepsiCo brand in the UK. So they have the snacks business for me. Doing this is an absolutely outstanding business. You'd want to own some of that. In fact, 
in recent years, there's been shareholders that have tried to pressure PepsiCo to split off beverages from snacks. It's it's a big chunk of the business, isn't it? Yeah, it, I, you know, I'd want to own a, I'd want to own a slice of that. Um, you know, the, the the what's unbelievable in 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 from an impressive point of view is how well this snacks business in North America has been able to grow not only the volume of what it sells, it's been able to put the prices up. Um, it makes phenomenal profit margins. I was going to say, 20, 25.6% of revenues, 39.1% of operating profits. Yeah, yeah. And look at the profit margins on it. You know, they're nearly 30% profit margins. Got about 65% of the US market on certain snacks, and it's still taking market share. So things are so good for Frito-Lays is that they've run out of capacity and they've had to put new manufacturing capacity, distribution capacity, and that's giving the growth another jump up. But what's good, even better for this kind of business, is that they have complemented it by making some quite smart acquisitions. They bought companies that do things like vegetable crisps, um, fruit chip, um, banana chips, apple chips, um, and these are the sort of businesses that go in sort of small, small snacks. So it fits the health conscious consumer and also the sort of small snack sized um, packaging, which is growing so quickly in the market. So that business is, you know, is just going from strength to strength. I think there are signs that the beverage market, the North American beverage market, but business, sorry, which has been a dog, is finally beginning to get some legs. And the international businesses have actually been doing quite well. It's just been masked by the strength of the dollar. And then you throw in a combination of um, good free cash flow, ongoing share buyback, um, and now the hope that we're actually going to start getting some, which for a consumer business, I'm not talking about 20%, to even 10% growth, but maybe 4 or 5% top-line sales growth, and that sort of might go to sort of eight nine percent earnings per share growth in a business that's making higher returns has a lot of stability and predictability there's a lot of a lot of value here and a lot of peace of mind which uh, a lot of investors are prepared to pay up for but the shares i mean the shares are not exactly cheap no they're not they're not i think they're, they're on what 23 nearly 24 times earnings but if but if you look if you look at it, if you believe that we're in an environment where bond yields are going to be low, and fact could he could go even lower. And if you, if I re- reading at the stuff that I'm reading about bond markets, um, you know a lot of people are expecting perhaps yields to keep on going lower. Then a, a business like this, which has got a lot of self help as well as some top line um, momentum now, I think could still do quite well. Yeah, it's a really nice business. Sort of makes the case for looking expanding your horizons when when trying to find good shares to buy. Well, I think we've talked, haven't we, John, uh, over the last few weeks that it's our our ambition to write more about American shares. Absolutely, and we had some feedback actually from uh, the question we posed on this podcast to to listeners whether we should do that, and uh, the consensus is absolutely that we should. So we will. And, and here think, we go. And I think you know there are there are more private investors certainly who are prepared to cast their nets a bit wider. And hopefully the brokers, if there are any brokers listening in terms of the platforms, uh, they will make it easier and hopefully cheaper 
for UK investors to have direct investments in, in American shares because I think it's a good hunting ground. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if it's still the case, but they used to. Do, uh, the feedback I had from readers was that when they tried to buy American shares, they often got screwed on the uh, foreign exchange. <laughs> that was that's that's been my experience in the past as well. I think things are getting. There are signs that things are getting better, but I still think the fees are a little bit too high. Um, so I, I, I think a little bit of a little bit of a an improvement there is there is needed. But you know, I mean, I'm running running this portfolio that I've run with um, American shares, and which have absorbed those costs, and you know, hold them on long enough, they soon become something that you forget about. If you tr- you know, if you're going to buy these shares and the costs are quite high, I mean, really, if you look at the exchange fees, they're not, you know, what's the difference between them? We don't like them. We don't like them, just like we don't like wide spreads on small caps. But if you can buy into a good business that you hold on to for a long time that grows, you soon forget about it. Talking of widespreads on small caps, there is a, there is a new story in the magazine this week written by Michael Taylor, which is a, um, a request for uh, engagement with uh, his response to the London Stock Exchange and its consultation on um, market opening. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, he wants shorter hours, which he believes. uh, And um, what does he want? 10 o'clock till half past three, does he want? Lazy bugger. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He won't get that. He's not going to get that. I mean, he's proposed a a couple of reforms which might actually help private investors and actually narrow some of those spreads that that you mentioned. But uh, have have a look at that anyway in the magazine. It's, It's... have a read. You might not agree. That's I, fine. I actually think there's no reason. I don't see any reason why the stock market has to open at eight o'clock. Which is, which is Michael's point. You know, it's, it used to open at nine o'clock when I first started. Probably yeah. when you first started as well. Maybe it was a nine, nine o'clock start. And I remember. I used to be in the office at quarter to seven. So yeah, I, yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, I just... so I, we, used to be in, we used to be in the office at quarter to seven because stock exchange announcements came at seven o'clock. Seven, exactly. But uh, you know in the days, but you know America trades between nine o'clock and four thirty. Was it half past? No, half past nine and four thirty. No, half past nine and four o'clock. Get it right. Honestly, they, they and they like working hard. They're not exactly um, work shy. So yeah, it's it does sort of raise. I think there was a lot of concern twenty years ago that if the London Stock Exchange didn't open at eight o'clock, that there was there was some fear, and I think completely misplaced that some business would have gone to mm. Frankfurt or somewhere like that. But I'm not sure that the German stock exchange was going to start trading UK shares. No. Have a look at that anyway. Uh, it's definitely worth uh, having a having a read of Michael's piece. And, and, and if you agree, uh, get involved in his survey, which uh, the link to is in the article. I mean, there is another reason for looking at American shares. And it's not necessarily if you want to own them directly, but the world is so interconnected now that um, what American shares are doing, American companies are doing, has a, a very direct impact on UK companies. And there's an example uh, you talk about in your Alpha report this week, which is Sage, which is which is suffering some fierce competition from a US rival into it through its QuickBooks product. Um, I mean, what what do you? It, the numbers are okay. It's a decent looking business, but you're worried about the future. Yeah, uh, you know, Sage has got a lot of attractive characteristics. Software software businesses. If you get the right one, they are immensely profitable because once you've once you've sold enough software to cover all your fixed overheads, and most of your overheads are fixed on this, then you know the actual cost of selling an extra license or an extra cloud subscription is 
you know, not very big. And therefore, you start, once you get scale, you start making big profits because each incremental sale, a, lo- a large chunk of that drops through to profit. For a long time, Sage has been the go-to product for professional bookkeepers, small and medium-sized companies. And it's become deeply entrenched within those those businesses. And the last few years, there, there are signs that it's perhaps not moved quick enough to the changing world of not only that kind of uh, tool or software tool that's needed, but also the way it's done right, over the internet and in, and in the cloud. Yeah. For a lot of people, Sage has been you know, a desktop product. And it's now looking to migrate those desktop customers to cloud customers. And it's done about half of the business so far. And it's got decent momentum there. And it not only wants them to go into the cloud, but it wants them to become monthly subscribers. So it's got this predictable recurring revenue. Which is which is the model that lots of the big software companies are going with. Microsoft does. It's, it's, it's subscription-based now. Makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And, you know, something that if it works well, you should welcome as an investor. The problem with well, I think where Sage has got into trouble here is that it's it's cost the cost of doing that has been pretty high, and you know its margins last year fell from twenty eight percent to twenty three percent. That's a big drop. It's a big drop, and they're not going back. You know they're going to stay at twenty three percent this year, and you know you compare that with Intuit. Intuit is and QuickBooks. They're they're going to be making. Thirty-four percent margins this year, if you know things carry on. And I also think that Intuit has won the minds of customers, particularly in the UK. Um, well, by talking to them, by talking to them, they are—they are visible. Yeah, you know, you, when, when was the last time you saw a Sage Sage advert on the telly? Never, I think, is the answer to that question. And you know, they are, and this is not just the the adverts of you know a man walking around building site with his mobile phone saying that you don't have to do your tax return or something's done for you which but it's but that kind of message certainly to not maybe maybe not bookkeepers but to small businesses who have no sort of accounting function or one man bands or sole sole proprietor that's a very powerful message um and interestingly that um if you look at the Intuit figures in more detail, they, they are now the number one cloud-based accounting software business in the UK. And they've got other products now that they're building on that. So they've got this foothold now. It's more than a foothold. They've they've got this, they've got their deep, they've got the they're entrenched. And my fear is that they're going to keep eating away at Sage. Even though there's there is stickiness here, but you know it's, it's crossed my mind that if you're a customer, you're a Sage customer, and you've got a desktop, and you think Sage are coming to you and say we want you to give up your desktop, and we want you to go to the cloud-based system, you might do that, but you might think, do you know what? I'm going to look at something else, and if that something else grabs you. And is cheaper. And if you can migrate your data easily, I presume that go on the internet. By... Go on the internet and type in Sage versus QuickBooks, and there are loads of links of websites 
off either telling you how to do it or offering their services of how to migrate. And Sage themselves, you know, Sage have actually got a page saying migrate from QuickBooks to Sage. Yeah. So it is, and this is the whole thing, you know, this, this it's a bit of a jargon, but this whole thing called switching costs. Mm. So this switching costs between, if switching costs were perceived to be too high or the process was too long, then that was like, part of what's known as an, another bit of jargon, economic moat. And it was a moat that kept people with the product. So I think, I think you've got a question, say, Sage's moat. Um, it's still a really good business. And it trades, at, I mean, the rating, again, you know, it's not a cheap share stage on 26 times earnings. Intuit's on 38. But That's the US premium, surely. The well, there's a growth premium as uh, well. Yeah, yeah. But... The more I look at Intuit, um, the more I like about it. And you, you think, if you park price aside from it, you think, I'd rather own a slice of Intuit than own, own a slice of Sage. Have you got either in your fantasy sip? You've got Sage, yeah. You're going to switch them? I might do. Switching costs? I might do. The <laughs> US broker costs have got to be factored in. This sounds, like a, this sounds like a future column. Yeah, something that I think... It's, an, it's really interesting, and I think, you know, I'm tempted to do a sort of deep dive on this. Yeah. I mean, you could see a price war. I mean, if they really are going, you know, hell for leather after each other's customers, then it might be bad for both. I don't think, yeah, I don't think they'll do that. Uh, I think, I think, but then again, if you've got big margins and you've got scale as well, you've got this operational leverage, then you've got scope to play around mm. in certain markets with, with your price. Both are really good businesses. I think with Sage, Sage is on a positive note. You think hopefully Sage has got over this teething trouble. The problem with is, is that the profits have taken a a big downward lurch, and they don't look like they're going to come up up again in terms of profit margin. And into it, certainly in the UK market. I mean, Sage is a essentially a European and American business. Um, the competitive threat is, is is there. Definitely one to keep an eye on. I look forward to the column. Thank you, Phil. I think we've run out of time. Covered a lot of ground there. Um, good stuff. Let me talk you through what else we've got in the magazine this week. Um, it's uh, it's 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 a relatively uh, quiet week on the results front um, into the new year. We. At the office, I'm putting together our FTSE 350 review, which will be able to pick up Friday week. So a lot of effort being put into that at the moment. It's where we look at every sector in detail, in a big supplement. Um, definitely worth a look. We'll be reading that this afternoon because it goes to press early. What fun before the weekend. Um, the usual tips and comment and personal finance and funds news, which they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow. Uh, alongside Phil, we have the usual comment from Chris Dillo and The Trader and Simon Thompson, who I understand is busily working on his bargain shares at the moment, hence the slightly abridged Simon Thompson columns uh, at the moment. In the news, we've got some really interesting news this week. Flybee, we've taken a look at in our new news feature, which replaces the sector focus and what that means for the airline industry. Serious Minerals is, is one of the big stories of the week and the uh, takeover there by Anglo-American, which has caused uh, some controversy because it's very, very low compared to what, what many uh, shareholders will have uh, would have bought in at. And in fact, our mining writer, uh, Alex Hamer, was on uh, ITV Tyne Tees talking about this because uh, lots of people in the region have bought the shares and are not very happy. Mike Coop at Sainsbury's has stepped down 
not before time, many people will say. A few big profit warnings. Things are getting worse at Ted Baker. Yeah, that's a mess, isn't it? N Brown, not looking great. Pearson has had a horrible couple of weeks and the CFO is going. So, uh, yeah, lots of interesting news. And the cover feature, we're looking at property. And specifically, we're looking at one of the bright spots in UK property, which is urban logistics. Getting parcels to your home, part of the big secular e-commerce growth trend. So, thank you, Phil. Thank you all for listening. Pick up the magazine and all good news agents. Property's shining star, the rise and rise of logistics warehousing and whether it can continue. Thank you.